You're listening to Heart of the Ark podcast from the Office for Evangelization in the Archdiocese of Newark. We're coming to you to bring knowledge and some courage as we voyage through this life as missionary disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Jennifer Benke, and I'm co-hosting this podcast with my friend and colleague, Father John Gordon. Jennifer Benke. This is the Heart of the Ark podcast. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Preston Dibble. Preston is the Director of Music at Our Lady of Sorrows here in the Archdiocese of Newark in South Orange. He's also the Diocesan Music Director for Patterson Diocese, as well as serving pivotal roles within the AGO and the National Pastoral Musicians. So I'm very glad to speak to Preston today. Preston, tell me about yourself. Well, thanks, Jennifer. I'm happy to be here. Uh, yes, I worked for a parish in South Orange, but also in the Patterson Diocese. But I say I live in Morris County. So, you know, I have I have dual citizenship, I think, with both of the, the dioceses here in northern New Jersey. Uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I've been in northern New Jersey since uh, 2004. Really enjoy being uh, here in New Jersey and uh, making music in our parishes. So happy to to chat with with you today. Yeah. So Preston, you and I have known each other almost ten yeah. years at this point. Mm, um, something like that. Yeah, colleagues, neighbors in different parishes. I rely on your friendship and your valuable mentorship as well. In terms of what we're talking about today, we both have a passion for music, for sacred music within the Catholic liturgy, and since. This conversation is going to come out right for all saints, all souls, and it's on the heels of the rituals around life and death. I thought that it would be very important for us to talk about how as music ministers, how as faithful Catholics, how as leaders within liturgical contexts, that we can use those as opportunities for evangelization. So let's get into it. Yeah, music is really a source of evangelization. I've always thought of music that way. It's that universal language that can reach someone's heart where words alone can't. And when we have families that come to us in a parish, at a time of grief, music can be uh, for them that healing balm. Um, but it's also an opportunity when you know people uh, come to the church uh, for the sacraments that maybe are not regular churchgoers, and it is an opportunity to, to bring them back to the flock, to more active uh, roles within their parish. So it's really, really important when working with families at times of grief that we use music as a, as a positive. So what do you look for when you start to, and my parish, and I'm, I'm certain at the parishes that you've worked at and within the context, you kind of have a list of the regular stuff. How do you decide what goes on the regular list of what you offer for a grieving family to kind of work off of? Yeah, it's it's important to, to provide them some guidance. Um, that's 
you know, why we're there as, as pastoral musicians to help them in that. Families oftentimes like to, you know, choose music and, and scripture passages and intercessions and things to, to personalize on the liturgy. I think it's important um, to kind of give them a guidebook, you know, so I offer a list of commonly used uh, hymns and songs which work as closing hymns or opening hymns. I offer a list of vocal solos and where those might be you know, best appropriate. For instance, you know, oftentimes families really enjoy Ave Maria as being part of the funeral, but it doesn't really work very well to make it the opening song. Right. Or even as the communion song, um, when we come together at the Lord's table, we should be singing a Eucharistic text uh, together. You know, so I have kind of a separate list where I would say these songs are appropriate to use at communion. And then the Ave Maria could be offered after that as, you know, quite of a, a meditation after we have taken in the sacrament together. So it's important to, you know, provide them with those options, but that helps steer them in ways where the music is going to best serve not just their needs as family, but the church's liturgy. For myself, when I choose music to put on those lists, I really default to either hymn texts that have come through our tradition that have a place either written by one of the doctors of the church, like say St. Thomas Aquinas, or, you know, that they're coming from a sound liturgical background or they're coming right from scripture. So Psalm 23, well, you could sing the King of Love, My Shepherd is, or there's ways to use prescribed hymns and the prescribed text, because that's something that's very important to me when, especially even just planning regular Sundays, that I try to find a a hymn that somehow connects back to the proper, the introit or the entrance or the offertory, the the communion proper, so that, you know, it's not Jen's words. It's not Jen's time to shine. It, we're all here for Christ, and Christ is the word. I focus on the word as much as possible. So how do you discern what kind of texts you use? Um, I offer a combination of texts. There's a number of we use the word contemporary, but at this point, it's something of a misnomer. But, you know, songs written over the course of the last 30 years that are very important to people. And I offer those as options at the proper place in the liturgy. But also there are hymns, which, which as you say, are really written specifically for, for this time. I always encourage people to consider uh, Eastern of the Resurrection form. I know that My Redeemer Lives is owned by people from lots of different denominations. That's another thing we kind of have to be sensitive to at funerals, is oftentimes there are many guests um, who will come who may be non-Catholic. You know, and when we choose hymns which are represented across many different churches, I think we as with Catholics have done a, a good thing in terms of evangelization and bringing people together. I feel the same. I know that there are several hymns that are on my list from the African-American spiritual background, because that's something that people, you know, precious Lord, take my hand or how great thou art or these these songs that really have like a, a meaning to certain segments within my community and that they feel very close to. I'm trying to think there's another one that the first time I sang it, one of the ladies came running up to me and said that's at every Jamaican funeral. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic, if you're a Protestant, it doesn't, that is what we sing at a Jamaican funeral. And I was like, okay, I'll make sure that I remember that. 
you know. Make a note. <laughs> exactly. Although I do have a, po- a strict policy that friends are not allowed to tell me what they want at their funerals. They need to write it down in an envelope with my name on it, and I will make it happen, but I don't want to know ahead of time. Just, I don't want to think about your death. <laughs> I don't want to go into the craziest requests that you've gotten. I know that there are some, some oddball ones, more for weddings than funerals, for me at least. But what are some hymns that you think that, you know, are done, but maybe we should reconsider you, the use of? Yeah, well, there's a couple of different categories there. I mean, it's not uncommon for a family at a funeral or a wedding um, to request a piece of music which is not sacred. By that, I'm meaning its text is not religious in nature. A song about love could be beautiful, but if it does not talk about Christ's blessing on that love, then it's not religious. Uh, so anything from the musical theater vein, you know, especially would not be appropriate. There's a song from Les Mis, which sometimes gets requested at funerals. You know, unfortunately, while it's a beautiful song and very touching, we are here at, at Christ's table and all of the music is sacred. So pop songs or or things which are not religious um, really, really shouldn't. And it, it does get a bit more subjective um, after that. But again, that's role that we've been entrusted with by our pastors and by Mother Church, you know, to help guide the faithful in good sacred music. And sometimes the texts of uh, some of the more contemporary songs fall short of teaching. So we, we kind of have to be be sensitive to those things, both pastorally with the family, but also just for ourselves and our, our own awareness. Any text which talks more about me or I and my feeling rather than than God's love and presence with us is kind of a red flag. I feel the same way in terms of there are some texts that present Christ's words, but without like the quotation marks or that they go back and forth and as a as a solo or as a hymn, especially in a funeral where there's not a, like a choir that can also answer a soloist to kind of bring the distinction between the people and Christ. It really, it, it becomes difficult to kind of figure out if that's appropriate. You know, like I, Jen Benke, am not the savior of anything. So I struggle with, even with my own humanness, when I'm presented with text that I will do something unless the whole song is within that text. If the speaker goes back and forth between Christ and the church too much without uh, some understanding of like, these are Christ's words versus our reaction to them, then I I try to avoid those at all costs personally, because I don't feel like it's good catechesis. Yeah. Um, and it's not good evangelization either because we're presenting the wrong message. There's another text off the top of my head that I've been asked to sing before. And it's, is it Psalm 8? What is man that you have made him little less than a God? But the the paraphrase of it is, you have made me little less than God? Like, n- no, no, that's, <laughs> me is not little less than God. Me is a little speck of dust, right? Like, and that, I don't think that's false humility. That's, the the paraphrase the translations are just not good catechesis you know and it's it's challenging to have those conversations um with a family who's grieving and and grandma just really liked that song um but it can be done in a pastoral way and nine and a half times out of ten family appreciates ending 
in the message and are happy to just another song. Right. You mentioned that there's a couple categories of music you avoid. So one is poor catechesis, poor evangelization, or written the text some way. Are there other songs that we should avoid in terms of things that we offer to families? The, the church has experienced a lot of a lot of difficulty over the years um, recently uh, struggling with abuse scandals and most recently there's been uh, significant uh, findings that one of our very most beloved composers of contemporary Catholic music um, has been credibly accused of abuse of her 50 women made accusations David Haas. He had been published by GIA Publications for a number of years. Um, once these allegations came out, GIA Publications severed their relationship and stopped selling his music. They will not sell it to you today if you call and ask for it. And at the urging of a number of the victims, many dioceses in the United States actually barred his music from use within their dioceses. That Haas deserves Christ for us as much as any of the rest of us. But is, it is a situation where a pastoral judgment has to come into play as to whether or not a song that was written by him is appropriate for use in liturgy. And each diocese and each parish you know, has made their, I know for myself at Our Lady of Sorrows, after talking with my pastor, we agreed that it would not be appropriate for us to use uh, his music at, at our parish. That's, that's a pastoral decision that we've made. I've prepared a list of alternatives um, of things that have the same message and are also composed in a contemporary style. Music has a force, the melody just as much as the text. So again, there are pastoral ways to approach that, but I think that that's an important uh, topic and an important subject that faithful need to be aware of. I have the same policy at Sacred Heart that I don't present music by David Haas for the same reason. You and I, amongst our colleagues, are one degree or two degrees of separation. We know some of these victims within our circles. So, you know, how would I feel if, because we live stream everything, how would I feel if one of my colleagues tuned into a broadcast and heard me presenting a song by their abuser? That would be detrimental to our friendship, to our relationship. And as you said, there are so many other composers that are working in the same idiom that are free of the controversies and these issues. And we can dig into those. There was a, a wedding recently that they asked for, you are mine. And she had taken a list from her local church, but she was, she was the bride and the, the groom was from our parish and said, well, I'd like to have this. And I said, well, I'm sorry, we don't offer David Haas music anymore. And she said, oh, but it's my favorite. And I said, well, can I explain to you why? And I said, you know, this is your wedding day. And this is someone who did not treat people in his life the way that Christ treats his church. So I don't think that that's a good match for your wedding day. Once she heard that, she was like, you're right. What else you got? So that opened up an opportunity to have a conversation and to really go deeper in that with someone on what her wedding was about. It wasn't just about the song that she loves so much. It was about what as your wedding, can I put you in the frame of mind of Christ marrying the bride of his church? How, how can we make that as clear as possible in this sacrament? Mm -hmm. And 
that changed her whole outlook on how she was going to handle the offertory hymn. Yeah, and that that um, is perhaps one of the most requested songs of, of his. And if you, if you go back to our text conversation from a few moments ago, the word I appears far too many times in that song for my own, a very inward-looking text. And I, I think it poses problems in its own right. You have one that you often substitute. One of mine is be still and know that I am God. And it's comforting, but it still comes from the scriptural text. And it's a lot more faithful of a rendering of the scriptural text and the <laughs> that humility is in it. We know who's speaking. We still know that I am God, not you are mine, who, you, who, me type thing. Going back to what you said, when it's a song about love, but it doesn't specifically say who the lover is or who the loved is, it gets really dicey in terms of whether or not it's appropriate for the sacrifice of the altar, our liturgy that is, you know, the work of the angels and we participate in. Yeah, it's, it's very important. And that's, you know, were those of us who have been entrusted as the music minister in a parish, be it full-time or part-time or volunteer, whoever is responsible for collecting the music for Sunday liturgy has awesome responsibility of catechesis, those parishioners. important to realize the power that the words of the songs that we sing have. Yes. I mean, we're giving people the words that are going to carry them through the rest of their week. And sometimes I know, especially with the children's choir, that I take great care in what I teach them, the words that they're going to sing to themselves as they grow older in faith, make sure that those are not a childish faith, but a faith that'll grow with them. So we don't do this little light of mine personally. I would rather them do children of the heavenly father. Like I'm always a child of, it goes somewhere to be a music wonk. It's a similarly based on a pentatonic scale. It's similarly singable for kids. You can, you know, you can skip rope and sing it, but at the same time, it's got more of a message of God's always going to be there with me instead of, as you said before, an inwardly me focus which I think runs contrary to our Catholic beliefs. Our, our Catholic beliefs are not me-centric. They're, they're outward-facing. What else in terms of evangelization and music do you want to bring up? Well, I just mentioned this, you know, kind of at the beginning of the podcast, but music is such a powerful force. It's a powerful force in our world. Um, if you think about commercial on TV, in a 15-second spot, a message is delivered to you, that message is always delivered with some kind of music. We're just, we're programmed as humans, um, whether or not we realize it in our daily lives, um, to receive musical messages. Um, so that makes liturgical music, when we come to church and when we come to the Eucharist, extremely important. So I think there's a lot of different ways that you can reach people through music both in the hymns and songs that you would sing for a liturgy. Um, if you have a choir or a, a soloist who would sometimes offer a piece of music for reflection by the assembly, um, you offer music as people are coming into the church. Um, I, have, I always play a, a prelude of the organ as people are 
are arriving for mass. And sometimes I've been asked, why do you do that? Um, it's not necessarily just for my own personal amusement, but when you come into the Lord's house, do you want it to feel like it's a ballpark, or do you want to feel a sense of sacredness? Um, you know, conversely, if it's meant, um, I'm not going to be playing some type of loud piece that would be more appropriate for Easter. Um, so in that context, music kind of has the the power to prepare us for what um, uh, and that can be challenging um especially in advent you know which is right around the corner um you know the, <laughs> Don't the, <remind> the, <laughs> the secular world is going to tell us that christmas starts the day after thanksgiving but our church's liturgy makes us wait wait wait, wait in joyful hope and our liturgical music has to reflect um, right. That that's a, a popular question from Why are we doing Christmas music? Well, we are waiting in joyful hope until he is born, and then we will do Christmas. That's right. Um, <laughs> and then we can do it all the way through the baptism, man. I'm, that's right. I'm I'm cool all the way through. You know, February second, feast of the presentation. We 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 go hard. <laughs> well, after all that waiting, um, that's that's. Um, yeah, but so music has has great power there to to guide our thoughts and our our prayers. You know, what's what's that opening hymn on the fourth Sunday of Advent? It's not "O Come All Ye Faithful" because he's not born yet. Right. Um, you know, and it's just so countercultural. Um, you know, and sometimes it's hard for the, the faithful to grasp that. Um, but music plays plays the role in that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean. Just to go back to, you know, in, in terms of Lent or Advent, I mean, just like you wouldn't expect to walk into a church for a funeral and hear a happy tune, you know, like when you're walk, there's there's times to be more meditative, there's times to be more reflective. Um, I also, you know, I run into sometimes like uh, well-meaning parishioners or uh, even, you know, priests, uh, you know, say things like, well, you know, the kids are here, so why don't you do happier music? And it's like, well, we're in Lent. And, you know, there are going to be times when they need to understand that, you know, there's a time for reaping and a time for sowing. There's a time for dancing and there's a time for mourning. There, there are times we have to learn how to behave at these times. You know, it's part of my job not just to entertain them but to get them to heaven in my little way my little area of influence is to teach them how to better accept all the times and and better respond in in appropriate ways and i don't think there's anything wrong with being a little bored i personally I think we're overstimulated as a society. Taking a step back in prayer before the Lord is always a good thing. Right. What do you do when you're bored? You contemplate. Well, that's part of being Catholic too. You start thinking about all the things you have to do. You start thinking about all the things that are bugging you on your mind. And then all of a sudden we're into a contemplative practice. God, come into these broken things, right? So it's okay to be a little, you know, antsy at church. That's fine. 
I also have heard that uh, quote, and I can't remember who said it, that art decorates space and music decorates time. We don't put up the funny papers or graffiti in our parishes and our churches because we recognize that the space is worthy of the very best. It's worthy of something with dignity that brings our minds to something higher. And so we don't decorate the time in church with the things of a common culture. We try to find ways to bring it up. We're always striving to be more perfect and bring ourselves and our the people who we minister to along with us up towards God and not keep them down where they're happy and comfortable. That's not what worship's about. Or else it becomes worship of ourselves and not our Lord. There again lies the lies the rub and, and the critical difference in the power that music have in achieving or not um, bringing us to a higher place. Right. I mean, one of the things I appreciate so much, you're, you're a very talented musician and, you know, you like myself, try not to make it the Preston show or the Jen show, right? Like right. we try to disappear in the offering of our gifts to the liturgy in a way that reflects our humility and our faith that we rely on God to bring everything we have to a much higher place. That's right. You know, and it sometimes happens at liturgy where, um, you know, people are so overjoyed by perhaps something a soloist or a choir or an ensemble did that they clap. Right. Um, but as a pastor musician, I hate when that happens. <laughs> um, it was not a performance. I'm glad that it was touching to you, and it's with a well-intentioned heart. But that's not—it's uh, not the purpose of the choir that I direct in South Orange. Uh, normally, always will sing uh, a choral anthem um, after we have sung our Eucharistic. Together is a time of meditation when vessels are being purified, and Olibrant has gone back to the chair and rested for some moments of reflection. And the choir offers a piece there, and when that's over, as the choir's director. I simply just kind of close my hands and put my head down and nobody moves until father stands up um, the choir doesn't sit down. We don't close our books. We don't get a bottle of water. Um, I don't go back to the organ bench or w whatever the thing we just, we stop and we just sit there and we let that, that moment of peace hopefully wash over the assembly. And then father stands up to offer the prayer after communion. Um, right. You know, so that's, you know, just a tiny example, but how doing music well incorporated into not fighting against the liturgy can lead people to a higher place. We do the same. We, we wait until, you know, even if our anthem ends a little early because somebody went the wrong way or the ushers are taking too long with the collection, they've gone all the way out to Belleville, that happens. We will stand and not move. And the same thing, I always put my head down we have the ability to use our, our back choir stalls. So we're kind of hidden behind the tabernacle anyway. So even if somebody was going to look towards the choir, they can't see us, the tabernacle's in front. So the focus is always back on the one who calls us there and not any one of us specifically. Thank you. Is there anything else, parting words with the last four minutes? You want to, pearls of wisdom you want to drop on, on us? Oh my, this, this is my final zinger. <laughs>
I would encourage all of the faithful who are listening to this podcast to really immerse themselves in the liturgical music of their parish. Take note of what has chosen as you're opening hymn this Sunday and find that connection between that text and against gospel. Um, certainly when you go to church on All Saints Day, you know, there are so many wonderful texts about the saints. And then I would finally encourage my fellow music directors to always give great care to the music that you choose. An important role, it's the most favorite part of my job, is selecting music. It's creative and use your musical skills and your literary skills all together at the same time. It's the best part of the work. So do you do Lexio Divina at the beginning of the week when you're picking the hymns? That would be a good idea. Oh, well, that's one of the ways I, how do I pick the hymns? I read, I read the, all the readings and then I go and look at what the propers are and I try to come up with the things that I think tie them all together and, and, mm. and that my community needs to hear. I mean, if there's something going on in the world that I don't get political, but if, you know, if there's a tragedy nearby and people are going to have broken hearts when they walk through my doors and it's my, it's my job to give them something that binds their hearts back to Christ. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for this conversation. Me too. God bless. Um, and uh, we'll- Happy All Saints Day. Happy All Saints Day. We'll see you soon. Okay. Bye. today with John Kalinowski. John, tell us about your ministry. Hi, Jen. Thank you. First of all, thank you for having me today. The ministry that I represent is loss and healing, which is part of the family life ministry. So we have different aspects of grieving and different types of support groups within the archdiocese. I really appreciate all of your work in the archdiocese in order to form in individual parishes these ministries that give support to families. You're the one who sent Kelly Jenner my way, who mm -hmm. spoke last time. It's very good having people like Kelly involved in the ministry because there's someone who takes their profession and combines it with their faith journey. And we do have a group of therapists that we recommend and refer to that are based on their Catholic faith. You're a lay man. You're lay mm -hmm. married children and grandchildren, but you're also a chaplain. Can you explain that to me, what that means in the Catholic context? Sure. In a Catholic context, most people think of a chaplain as a priest. The background of chaplaincy kind of goes back to a military understanding of a priest being the chaplain. In lay ministry, a chaplain in the Catholic faith is someone who walks that journey. Usually they're board certified and also certified at a national level. In our Catholic tradition, we are able to speak to our faith journey with people who may be grieving or may be sick, may be dying, or their family members or even staff members in a hospital or healthcare facility. So the role of the chaplain is to 
walk that faith journey with people and to assist them in walking that path that they may be really struggling with. The other thing that we do is we bring the Eucharist. We also have priests come in to do the sacrament of the sick and anointing, which is very much a part of our Catholic tradition, especially in hospitals and, and other healthcare facilities. So there's that collaboration with priests in doing these type of things. You're really putting these conversations, it's the rubber meets the road in these difficult situations where people are are having to not only make life-changing decisions, they're finding out life-altering information. And then they have to make decisions on how to walk into the future with these. So can you talk to me about, obviously without specifics, um, I'm not looking to pry into things, but in terms of the types of situations and walking someone into an understanding of a fatal diagnosis or uh, transitioning into palliative care or hospice, Where does that wellspring of your spiritual formation come from? Let's start with a patient in a hospital setting that gets a poor prognosis. Oftentimes, the medical staff will ask a chaplain to go in and speak with the patient and their family as to a poor prognosis. If in the case of being a Catholic patient, we can talk about the religious directives that are part of our church teaching. So that can lead to a discussion if it becomes an end-of-life situation that we can guide the people along through Catholic teaching through the ethical and religious directives. Being there with a person who gets a poor prognosis is to walk with them in understanding where are they on their life's journey. We talk about the quality of their life, not so much about the quantity of their life. Certain aspects of, of poor prognosis can be to do everything or to do very little. When someone asks to do everything, that's usually a journey that they make with their family. But when we're talking about specifically about an end-of-life situation and whether that patient is going to be able to go to hospice, becomes under the palliative guidelines. Here in the United States, unfortunately, hospice has become a last resort. Original intention of hospice was six months out, that someone would have a comfortable time, they would have good life for six months. Unfortunately, what's happened now is that people are staying in the hospital much longer, and then the hospice portion then becomes weeks, days, hours as opposed to the original intention. So having to make those decisions for a family becomes very grueling for them to make those decisions. And oftentimes, especially with Catholic families, there's that sense, am I putting my loved one into a hospice? Am I killing them? And the answer is no. The ethical and religious directives allow for non-beneficial treatment or withdrawal of treatment, which does then allow for hospice care. Thanks for explaining that. A lot of things have changed in terms of the way we handle end-of-life discussions and understanding our whole continuity of womb-to-tomb care for the human person. That's very much a part of the ministry of loss and healing, is to go from that perinatal time to end-of-life, whatever that may be and whenever that may be. The other thing that I wanted to add about hospice is hospice care also includes spiritual care for Catholics. And and for most 
hospice organizations, they do have a spiritual component, even if they're secular. One of the things, having worked in a Catholic hospital and being part of the ethics committee, we can have those conversations and talk faithfully about our Catholic teachings, about religious directives. The other aspect of it is in a Catholic hospital, you have the ability to have grieving time before anything else happens. You can have, if there's a stillborn birth, you can have those footprints. It then becomes part of a ritual of meeting the families in a religious context of a burial site. Most Catholic dioceses have Catholic cemeteries, and they mostly have cemetery plots for babies, which is an incredible tradition. And I was part of that when I was in a Catholic hospital. In that three times a year, we would bury the babies, you know, perinatal, Mm -hmm. stillborn, then have a wonderful ceremony with the families. And it was very touching, incredible for me, having gone through that as a child, having lost a brother, having lost a niece perinatally. And so it it does become a, a very important part of our journey of faith. Yes. One of the other things that we've come across as you and I have been working together on this morning of healing that we did back in May and hopefully we'll do again in this coming May is that we found out that possibly the only positive that came out of COVID is that the paperwork for streamlining prenatal death has been streamlined. It used to be a cutoff of 20 weeks or older, but now at any gestational age, a medical professional in conjunction with a funeral director, can create the correct kind of documents so that any child can be buried, no matter how old or how young or how small. I think that's a game changer in a way. And I know that you and I work with Cheryl and Respect to Life, and these are conversations that we've had, and I know that we've reached out and made sure that Catholic Cemeteries is aware of it. They are. They're very very incredible. (laughs) They really are. are. They really took the lead in that area, especially in the Catholic facility, certainly. It's always looked at as life from conceiving. It's great that New Jersey's coming up to present age. Something you said before, within a Catholic context of seeing a patient in a Catholic hospital, and able to really handle that grief throughout the whole stages. I have someone very dear to me who was in a uh, difficult accident and spent quite a lot of time at St. Joseph's over in Patterson. The amount of spiritual integration in his care that came from nuns stopping by or chaplains coming through or someone coming by on a Sunday and saying, hey, would you like to receive the sacrament? Really changed who that person was and how he saw his future and made it a turning point spiritually for this person in their journey of life. I think that's what you were saying in the beginning, and I just kind of wanted to... Actually, if I could tell you a little bit about the background and how I, how I got to this chair today... So I started out in a Catholic hospital at St. Francis Medical Center in in Trenton as a Eucharistic minister. And it was at first giving Eucharist to those in the, the general population in the hospital. Then we were asked to go up to the compassionate care unit, which is hospice. From there, certainly giving Eucharist to those patients that could receive, but then being asked by 
the nurses in compassionate care to pray with others that weren't necessarily Catholic. At the time, I was also going through the spiritual exercises, and my spiritual director, who was this wonderful Jesuit priest in New York City, said, there is more to this than what you're doing now. It took another eight years of that, but it did make me aware of my faith journey and that bringing the Eucharist was certainly very important. But talking to people about what they were going through was certainly something that made me feel much stronger and appreciated for what the people were telling me and how I was walking with them. Mm-hmm. So that really made a big difference. Also, I did some chaplaincy studies in a psychiatric hospital in Trent. That certainly made a difference because we were seeing everybody in a much different light than we would in a regular hospital setting. And so these type of journeys and working in ministry, nursing homes and hospice, and all these things has provided me a better journey of my faith. Mm-hmm. And for that has made me a better chaplain today. Sometimes I wonder how I got in this chair. Coming from a musical background and being a performer, this is going to sound weird, but you're always aware of your audience. Mm -hmm. When you're the type of performer I am, it's not a monologue. It's a dialogue. Even if all you're getting from them seems to be either applause or it's, it's, you know, a stone face. (laughs) We're not really having a dialogue, right? Part of my performances in the past have been performing operas and nursing homes, going to hospitals, going to senior centers, bringing opera to people who appreciate opera, but would not get the chance to go to Lincoln Center. And also, I had the wonderful opportunity to be invited by a friend of mine, actually the guy who wrote the theme song to our podcast. We did a performance up in Massachusetts area at a inpatient mental facility. And we were asked by the staff to give a performance of pretty much like the most moving musical material that we could present to people who were really disengaged, either medically or clinically disengaged from emotional response. And that situation that I was in, it was almost as if my emotions were being pulled out of me. Like I could feel how much radiated heat from the people in that room because they were just so hungry for emotional connection. And that really changed the way I started to conceive of actually all of the rest of what I do. That if I'm being really honest and I'm in a dialogue, whether it be a conversation like we're having or I'm performing, that it's not about me so much as me being receptive to whomever else. I give what I'm supposed to give, and then I just let them give back what they need to. That's what ministry is about. It's about being where the person is, not where we're necessarily at. It's being able to listen without fixing anything. I spent 35 years in publishing fixing things. I've spent the last 12 years listening to things and people and being able to react in a journey that isn't about me. It is about me, but it's not. It's about that person. Certainly, I draw on my faith and my, my faith tradition into being a good bereavement minister and to be a chaplain and to be a husband and to be a father and a grandfather. These are things that lead us 
on this journey. And I can't say enough about God's role in my life. Amen. Thank you so much today, John. Thank you. Heart of the Ark podcast is an initiative by the Office for Evangelization at the Archdiocese of Newark. If you want to find us online, you can find us at rcan.org slash evangelization. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Very soon we'll be updating our social media for the Heart of the Ark, but you can find us on Fireside Podcasts at Heart of the Ark. Fireside.fm. Our theme song is composed by and orchestrated by Eric Hunter, a dear friend of mine. You can find out more about Eric and his performances and compositions at Eric, E R I C, Hunter, H U N T E R, music.com. This has been a pleasure, and I look forward to hearing from you and speaking with you in the future.